Hear the word of the Lord. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. For we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, the proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly uh, in Jerusalem and became many of the priests, and great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Skipping ahead in the story a little bit. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him, but he, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven. And saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Merciful God in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, your word that has so much to teach us, to exhort us in. I pray that you would speak to us, your people, through your word, that you would challenge us where we need challenging, that you would strengthen us where we need strengthening, that you would bind us together in all unity and all love in Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. If you um, are the kind of person that looks at the news or pays attention to what's happening in the world, um, there's a lot of news out there that suggests that the church is on decline and, and dying, especially in the Western World And, you know, the stats actually bear that out to be kind of true. Uh, the highest rate of church closures ever are, are happening now in the West. And to give you an example, in, in 1900, um, there were 27 churches for every 10,000 people. In America, there were 27 churches for every 10,000 people. Uh, which has dwindled down today um, that, that there is uh, now eight churches for every 10,000 people. And actually that stat is actually probably high 
because the stat number is a little low. Uh, not only is the church declining, but this new categories uh, of people is um, coming out called the nun category. These aren't, you know, single women who live in a, you know, a female monastery together. Covenant, that's convent, that's what they're called. Um, uh, but the nuns, N-O-N-E, are ones that have no affiliation to any religious group at all. And they just kind of want to be left alone. It's probably millennials uh, like me. You just want to be left alone, man. Um, so that group is fa- growing faster than the churches. Um, and uh, all signs kind of point to the demise of the, the church. And uh, not encouraging news to start a sermon on. And it gets worse. Uh, and I think some of the reason for this decline, at least, is um, some of the credibility of the church is uh, in question. Uh, conflicts, scandals uh, inside the church, abuse, lying, stealing. And much of this is done, actually, by pastors, the people that are supposed to be um, leading the people. You know, there's one uh, story. It's, it's a little old, but it's a good one to give you an idea of the depth of this. Um, there was a famous pastor who once was recorded trying to hire a, a hitman to kill his son-in-law. I mean, that kind of stuff does not, like, build confidence in this thing that we call the church and the community of the church. Uh, it, I think it gets worse. Um, he came here to get encouraged. I'm sorry. Uh, but when you, when you look at the church around the world, um, it isn't just the conflicts and the stuff inside the church that's kind of ripping us apart and, and, and challenging our credibility and the viability of this body. Um, but uh, there's more martyrs today. There's more people being killed because of their faith in Christ today than in any other century before. Uh, at least one number I saw was in the 20th century, 45 million Christians died for their faith. That's a, that's a lot of people, right? Uh, 45 million. How many people are there in Canada? There's probably more than people that live in Canada. Um, it's a lot of people uh, um, that died for their faith in the 20th century. And then although, you know, you and I are not going to likely get killed for our faith in our country here, there's no shortage of cultural attacks on us, are there? People who maybe aren't going to kill us, but they don't particularly like us, and they wouldn't be particularly sad if we happened to, you know, die or this building burned and we all got stuck inside of it. There's people that would not cry over it um, uh, because they don't like what we believe about things. And, you know, one day there could be serious political attacks on us in a way that, you know, muzzles us and bridles us, threatens to put us in prison. That is not happening now, but it's, I think it's a possibility. So what do, we, what do we do with this? You get this internal thing within us that we struggle to get along. You get this external pressure that's saying we don't like you and we're okay if you die. How do we deal with these, with these conflicts? I think the, the realities of the conflicts in and out of the church can cause us to maybe lose hope in it. It's like, what's the point? This seems so hard. It's like we're pushing a rock up the hill all the time. Is it really worth all this struggle, all this challenge? And and will the church actually endure through this? These seems like some pretty strong oppositions to us and what we believe. Can we, can we endure? And this is where looking at the story of Acts is so good for us. Because the story of Acts, this is our story. This is our church origin story. And, uh, and one of the things that's encouraging whenever you look at your story, even if, you've, if you're a journaler and you look back at your own story in life when you're in a hardship, is looking back to see how God has gotten you to where you are now. It's always an encouraging thing to do because one of the things we realize is that our trials that we face now are not new. Uh, the church has actually always faced these kinds of trials inside the church and outside the church. And, uh, and actually, I might argue, 
that the, the challenges we face are actually very low on the scale of intensity compared to other periods of time in history, like the one of which the church is dealing with in the time of Acts. And I think one of the things we're going to learn that I really hope that we learn and take to heart as we look at this story in Acts is that despite all the odds, despite our love to fight and tear each other apart inside the church, despite the outside world's desire to tear us apart from the outside, um, despite all the odds, I think we can look back and, and claim this truth that nothing can stop the growth of the church. Not conflicts of harmony within her, not threats of violence outside of her, come hell or high water, the church will grow and expand until it covers the earth. That is, that is what this will, I think, teach us in, as we look at this story of prevailing. Um, and I hope that this gives us a renewed hope and renewed vigor uh, for life in the church uh, here now. And, uh, and so as we do this, we're going to break this up into two parts. First, we're going to look at this opening story with this infighting that threatens the harmony of the church. Uh, and, and second, we're going to look at this, the second half of this story, which is these external conflicts that threaten the very existence of the church. So first, we're going to look at infighting that threatens the harmony of the church. Let's look back at chapter 6, verse 1. says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose up against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So, you know, there's a conflict that's happening within the church. So what's happening is these Hellenist widows are uh, being neglected in this daily distribution, likely of, of food and, and necessities like that. So what, who are these Hellenist uh, widows? Well, uh, if you remember in the Old Testament, there is, you know, the Jews every now and then would get expelled from the land and they ended up scattered all over the known world around the Mediterranean. And sometimes the, those families didn't move back to Israel. And so they stayed in these other lands and these lands were influenced by Greek culture. They spoke Greek language. And these are the, the Hellenists. They're they're still very, very much Jewish people, uh, Israelites, but they, they spoke and they had the cultural customs of the, the Greeks versus the, the Hebrew widows would have been the ones that they're like the true-blooded ones. They're the ones that never left um, Israel, born, raised, buried in Israel with, along with their other family. Um, they, they spoke a different language, likely spoke Aramaic. And so you have this battle happening between these two, two people and, and really... It's a sin of favoritism. Right? This isn't racism. They're actually the same race of people. But it's this ethnocentric bias that says, listen, I'm better than you. I'm more important to you by virtue of my birth. It's like, yeah, you're a Jew. I'm not saying you're not important. But you're not, you're not going to be in the front of the line kind of Jew. That's a Hebrew position. Um, this, is, this is actually pretty ugly uh, to happen in a church. I don't know that we have like favoritism like this happening in our church yet, but it could happen at some point if we're not careful. And uh, think about this community. It goes from this community just a few chapters earlier, and they love each other. They're in each other's homes all the time. Maybe that's the problem. You don't go in each other's homes all the time. It'll make you start fighting each other. But they're, you know, they're in each other's homes all the time, sharing meals, breaking bread, praying over the word. Uh, and then what happens? Uh, all of a sudden, this conflict breaks out. All of a sudden, this group grows so big uh, that that harmony that they once had is being threatened. And you know, I, um, I used to read really quickly past this part. In fact, before I was studying for the sermon, I said, hey, what's Acts 6 about? I would have known. 
but I wouldn't have probably brought up this distribution thing. I probably would have said, oh yeah, it's, it's when we get our first diaconate, the first deacons, the first office of the church. It's when they're, that, 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 that office is first seen in the Bible. And I often read past this section, just get, oh yeah, the deacon, that's pretty cool. It's kind of fun to see how that all happened at, at the start. Um, but this time, as I'm reading more slowly through it and studying for it, I, I guess the ugliness of the situation kind of really stood out to me. This isn't just a, a small thing that's happening in the life of the church. I think this conflict has a very potential to destroy this community. I mean, think about the kind of people that are being neglected right here. It's, it's widows. Um, widows, especially in this time, are the most vulnerable class of people uh, in the Bible, along with orphans, which is why God's constantly saying, right, care for who? The widows and the orphans. Why? Because they cannot care for themselves. Widows cannot own land. It's not like they can just get a job at, at Wendy's. Or, I don't know why you'd work at Wendy's. Wherever. They can just get a job, you know? Uh, they, they were completely dependent on other people and their kindness. Um, and that's the people the people that could not care for themselves, those are the people that are being put in the back of the line and being neglected to the point where they are missing out on food. I mean, I think if that happens here, that would likely destroy our church. That's the kind of, you know, threat level, you know, red or whatever those levels are. It's, is, you know, orange, I don't know, whatever's worse. It's that threat level. It's bad. And, um, and, you know, this is the hardest part about living in, in community, isn't it? It's the conflict. Like, we all like the idea of community. Yeah, we're going to be friends. And, but, you know, when you're with people, you will fight with them. Guarantee. For those of you who are married in the room, who do you fight with more than anybody else? Your spouse. And that's not a, necessarily a bad thing. It just actually means that you are in community with other people. Um, this is just what happens. Uh, and the question is, though, can we work through it? What do we do when we have that kind of conflict? And, um, and maybe even some of you, you know, you, you've been in other churches where you've experienced over-the-top conflict that made you leave that church for some reason, and you come here and you come hoping, hey, is this going to be a community that, that is better with conflict? And I, I hope the answer is, is, you know, yes, that we can work through it better, but that's the challenge with any group of people is what do you do with conflict? How do you manage um, our ability to actually live together uh, when we have hardships, when we've, we're sinned against? How do we work through that? Well, what do the disciples do when this conflict comes for their community? When this threat comes, what do they do? Well, let's look. Um, verse 2 to 3, it says this. And the, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and we will appoint to this duty. It's kind of interesting. The, the apostles are like, listen, we don't have time for this. Uh, I have other things I need to do. Um, and so I need to serve, I, so we need to find other people to serve under us to manage the people. And, uh, and then you kind of get this beautiful, you know, layers of leadership that are, are developing here. Um, and this new layer of leadership that's developing as this thing is, organic thing is growing are deacons. Now deacon is a word that is from, it simply means to serve. And you actually see the word uh, in the text here when it's at the end of verse two and it says, we, we, uh, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, to deacon tables. That's what that word is. And so deacons mean to serve. And, uh, and this is likely the first 
you know, people disagree about this, but I think it's most likely the first sign of the first group, first deacons that you find in the Bible. I think it grows in complexity to where in 1 Timothy 3, you get them kind of really this, if you've ever read 1 Timothy 3, you kind of get those offices in the church more established. Um, this is kind of its, its uh, origin story. And, um, and the, the, the deacons are here to serve and handling mercy and care because the apostles, which you know, now for us elders, are, are to practice prayer and teaching and ruling. And so the disciples, disciples uh, uh, address this conflict by actually sharing their power with others to help manage the people. And um, what's interesting about this, though, is, is not just that they kind of develop this other office, but it's who they share it with. These seven names are all Greek names, uh, which means they're all Hellenists. They didn't say, listen, this is a, a battle between the, the ladies, so let's Let's appoint some ladies to go and manage, manage, your, manage your house, ladies. Um, uh, 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 they didn't, or they didn't pick, like, listen, we're going to pick a, a couple Hebrews, a couple Hellenists, make sure we get an even mix of men and women from those groups. Uh, that's not what they did. This is not, there's no equal representation here on this board. It says they picked six men who were good, uh, who, who were full of the spirit, full of wisdom, at the end of the day, what this teaches is this is how conflicts are resolved in communities. By godly men who lead with spirit and wisdom, with great courage, stepping into the middle of conflict, not, uh, uh, not avoiding it. Sorry, I know everyone in this room, I, I know you. Everyone in this room will avoid conflict if they can. It's human nature. We all do it. Uh, but to be full of the spirit and wisdom means that you go head on into conflict. This is what, why we're given godly men to lead. This is what they do. They, they, they look at the conflict and they say, listen, we're gonna, we're gonna work this through by the power of the spirit. And they wisely work through it. This is how it happens. And you know what's amazing about this plan of theirs? Is, is it actually works. Look at verse seven. Uh, it says, and the word of God, this is after they laid their hands on them to go do their work. And it says, and the word of God continue to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. So these, these men dealt with the conflict. They, they brought order to this chaos. Harmony is restored. And what happens? The community actually grows. And now it actually can grow because it's kind of developed as needed organizational structure that, that helps build more on top of it. Conflict gave the occasion for this innovation and growth. In fact, this innovation and growth of different offices and sharing leadership might not have happened if it wasn't for this conflict. This kind of mirrors, if you, for those of you familiar with the Old Testament, Moses. Remember Moses when they're in the desert and they're kind of, you know, and now he's obviously he's got all these people that are following him and he's, he's the leader and people are coming to him with disputes to say, hey, can you help us in this issue? And he's overwhelmed with it. And it's Moses' father-in-law that says, hey, man, you should appoint some other people to help rule beside you, to help govern with you. And so he does. And then the people are actually governed and harmony is restored. I mean, this is a cycle for, for any group as it, as it grows. I mean, it's what we're doing even this evening. As we have grown, we need more people and leadership to help govern, to help restore harmony and peace in this community. And any group grows from this small thing, right? This organic thing. Hey, maybe a few families in a home doesn't need all these structures. But as you grow with people, you just, you need structure. It's like any building. Uh, different buildings need structure to be able to grow, to be able to withstand any threat. 
And so we find this profound internal thread is, is turned away, and not merely turned away, it's not like it was just deflected, pew pew, uh, but it would actually turn into an occasion for growth and health. Uh, this, this, out, this internal conflict actually helped the church not just survive and make it, you know, maybe we lost half our members, but you know, we made it. It actually grew because of this. And this is what God does. He takes the messiness of life and makes something beautiful. And not just something beautiful, but something that actually could not exist if the messiness did not come first. And this, I know that we, we hate conflict. But if you avoid conflict, what you're really doing is you're actually avoiding a place, a way for God to actually produce growth and health in your life. This is what this teaches. When we ignore conflict, you ignore an opportunity for God to work. You're saying, no, you, you, I don't want you to work here. But maybe the things that God wants to do in your life and, and inside this church cannot happen unless we go through conflict. And what Acts is teaching us is that avoiding conflict is not the way to grow growth. It's actually the way to slow death. If they would have ignored this issue and just tried to make it work out on its own, I think the church might, might have died. But it's when we deal with conflict head on when the, with the spirit and all wisdom that we can have what they have here. I mean, this is hard for us, but it, it helps reframe um, our, our issues with each other to see opportunity for deeper fellowship and joy. Opportunities for growth. Opportunities for expansion and planting more churches. That's what happens as we're ordered rightly like this. And so we see the church surviving this massive internal upheaval. Um, and things seem to be going great. Everyone's happy and the gospel's going out. Even some of the priests are saying, hey, yeah, we believe in this Jesus guy too. It's great. And then we hit a roadblock and we find the first Christian martyr in the uh, book of Acts. And this is where the second aspect we see here is that external conflict threatens the existence of the church. Next thing we see here is that external conflict threatens the existence of the church. It couldn't, couldn't get the church from the inside out, but maybe from the outside in, we can destroy it. So you look at verse 8, and you find Stephen. He's one of, the, one of the deacons, right, who's full of grace and power. He was doing great wonders and signs. He's teaching. He's performing miracles. And, uh, and then as the description goes, uh, he, he, uh, the people he's battling against cannot outduel him because he's so smart, he's so wise, he keeps on uh, beating them and their challenges that they're bringing against him. And so they get mad and they start make, lying about him and they're jealous about him. And so they get him arrested. And the two charges, uh, the, the nature of the two charges they bring against him are, are these, that, that there's two things. The, the nature of the temple and God's presence, like where does God dwell? And the other thing they lie about him is the nature of the law of God. And uh, in chapter 7 is his kind of sermon. Uh, it's the longest sermon in the book of Acts. I encourage you to read it. We just didn't have time to read through and go through every detail. I'm going to summarize it and kind of help us get to the, get to the point of it. Um, but, but basically what he does is he uses the Old Testament. He doesn't really talk about Jesus until the very end he brings up Jesus. But he uses the Old Testament to help reframe some things and to teach. And this is what they do a lot in, the, in Acts because they're dealing with Jewish people who, who would call the Old Testament scripture, say, hey, I'm gonna use what you think is true and I'm gonna show you how uh, it points to what I believe. And so he, so he first kind of begins saying, listen, God appeared to Abraham uh, outside the temple. God appeared to Moses outside the temple. God dwells everywhere. And then he crescendos um, his message 
And he says this to him. This is the very end of his sermon. Uh, some of the last words he says before he gets killed are, are these. In verse 51 to 53, feel free to follow along in your Bibles. Chapter 7, 51 to 53, he says this. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Oof. Listen, if you speak like this to people, uh, it won't go over well. He's not holding punches. Part of me wonders, you know, if some of our modern day sensibilities, if we heard Stephen say this, we'd be like, whoa, Stephen, just woof. You're not going to win any friends like that. Just tamp it down a little bit. Uh, but yet, this is what is needed sometimes. Sometimes when you're confronting great evil, there's no beating around the bush. Sometimes you just have to say, listen, you are stiff-necked people. There is proof. Uh, he is offensive. Sometimes we actually have to be willing to be offensive. And their response, how do they respond? Are they, oh yeah, you know, you're right. You know, it's kind of interesting when in Peter's sermon, he, he does, he's not this, he doesn't go this hard on him in chapter 2, but he does say some things in chapter in Acts 2, and he does say that you guys killed Jesus, and, uh, uh, and how do the people respond? It says they're cut to the heart, right? The Spirit's at work in the heart. Here, how do they respond? It's the opposite. These people are not um, cut to the heart by the Spirit. They're, they're, they're enraged. It says in verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. You know, it's kind of grounding your teeth is kind of a funny thing. It's it's not healthy. It's not good for your teeth to grind them. Why would they grind their teeth? I think part of what he's saying here is that you're so enraged that you can't speak. Have you ever been that mad? You know, something happens. Uh, and you, or you see something that's just a gross injustice. You get so mad that you're just like, you know. Um, I think we've probably all, all been there. Um, so mad that you can't speak. This is, this is what's happening. And then it's kind of a little bit comical because uh, uh, in verse 56... Uh, Stephen starts speaking again. He says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then they respond like this. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They, they're so mad. They can't say anything. They, they can't handle him speaking. They cover their ears. They yell like children, like, Ah, I can't hear you. Uh, and then um, they take off their clothes, their cloaks, and they, they set them at the feet of Saul. We'll find that Saul, the great persecutor of the church, and they turned to kill him. And it's this kind of wild scene taking place before us. And this is how Stephen responds to them rushing to him to kill him. Verse 6, he says, And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. We had said this, he fell asleep. What a response. You know, even like the, the truth that uh, Stephen speaks to them that's harsh you know that it was truth and love because of this what did, what did Stephen want to see more than anything he actually wanted these stiff necked people who would not listen to the Holy Spirit he wanted to cut through that so that they actually would listen to the Holy Spirit and sometimes it's harsh truths that actually cut through the noise of life to convict us Stephen's intention here was that these people would know the Lord that the Spirit would be at work in them uh, and, and yet that's not what happened, is it? It's from this moment he was stoned. He, he took up rocks and they threw them at him, hitting him on the head over and over and over again. 
until finally he succumbed to his wounds and died. Uh, and this is not an isolated incident, but this marks a turn in Acts where persecution um, is uh, increased. In the next little section of, verse, uh, of chapter 8, it, you see this. In uh, verse 3, it says, But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It's an ugly scene. Saul going door to door, ravaging the church. You know, that term ravaging is used to speak about like a lion ravaging its prey, ripping its flesh off. That's kind of the image we should have. The flesh is being ripped off the church. Uh, it's, it's wild. And, and maybe at least one question you might be thinking, I, I, I thought it when I was reading, it's like, it's the why question. You know, like why? Like the church is growing. It's finally doing well. They're working through issues, the, the, you know, the struggles of living to get life together. They have this man, Stephen, who seems to be like an amazing preacher. He's, he's, he's you know, like an angel to look at, um, gifted beyond all measure, it seems. Isn't this kind of a waste? Uh, just to, to, to let him be killed and then to uh, Saul to go out? God, why don't you stop this? Why do you allow this? Why do you allow your people sometimes, even around the world, 20th century, this is still happening. Why do you allow your people to be devoured and scoured like, and scattered like this? Well, part of the answer is, is here in seeing where they are scattered. Look, look at this. Um, in verse 1, it says, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. That's kind of interesting. Um, what did Jesus say before in chapter 1 about the Great Commission, about where he was going to send his people? Remember that? Jesus said, I'm going to send you. You can be my witness where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Well, that's interesting. And what we find is that what us to appears is this disaster, this unmitigated chaos, actually becomes the very cause for the growth and expansion of the gospel in the world. All right, th this persecution is actually the very means by which the church fulfilled its purpose. The church's purpose was fulfilled through persecution and scattering. Although this is a jarring thing to hear, we probably have all experienced this in our lives, and it should not surprise us because this is the way of Christ. Christ, too, was wrongly accused like Stephen was. He was also beaten. On uh, his dying breast, he also cried out, forgive them. And was murdered. His life was wasted in a way. But it's actually through it, through himself, planting himself in the ground, entering into places of death. It is, it is that very work uh, that is the means by which he destroys death and makes life possible for us. We, his people, follow the same path in our lives. Which means even on your worst days, God's plans cannot fail. Even your worst days actually eventually turn into the means of God's mission in your life and in the world. They become, even your worst days become tombs, just waiting to burst with resurrection. Which makes you ask, so what are those things that cause you fear from the outside looking in? I mean, think about your own life and the things that seem like failings. What if though all those things were actually seeds of the kingdom just waiting for their time to burst through the ground to new life.
Um, you know, a friend of mine uh, tells a story of this missionary named Del Tar in, uh, who served in West Africa and just outside the Sahara Desert. And there was this land that they had, they had four months of, of rainy season and then eight months where it was just bone dry. He said, you know, rain season would come and they would plant and they would harvest. And for those first few months after, after harvest, everyone was, had full bellies and uh, there, was, there was happy, there was joy. He said, by December, we were down to maybe two, one and a half meals um, a day there. The, the, the ground started cracking, you know, from no water. Hands were cracking from lack of moisture. By January and February, they were down to a meal a day. Uh, January, February, March. By March... <laughs> Uh, by March, uh, you know, they're just eating just a little handful of food each day. And so the, the month eight, he said, was the hardest month out of the year to be with those people. Because you'd be woken up at night, the shrill cry of children, babies, hungry. And at that point, some children and some adults would succumb to hunger. And uh, he said, inevitably, just a few weeks before the rain started, a boy would walk into the barn and he'd see this this leather pouch hanging on the wall and he'd put his hand in it and he'd feel grain. He'd get really excited. He'd go run to his dad and be like, dad, there's grain in the barn. Let's, let's get it. Let's, let's make bread. We can, we can have our bellies full again. The father would say, no, that's, that's not what that is. So no, there's, there's grain. Let me show you, he says, son, that grain is for next year's harvest. If we ate that, we would not have any more food. And the son would be confused, sad, listening to his father, and then the rain would finally come. And the boy would watch as his father would take that, that pouch, put it over his shoulder, grab the seed and throw it on the ground, throwing it all away, scatter it on the dirt. He'd watch in confusion and sadness as this was happening. Why? But why did the father do this? Why did the father go and waste that seed on the ground? But because he believed in the harvest. The act of sowing hurt so much that he would cry as he was doing it. But this Deltar says this about this moment. He says, don't expect to rejoice later unless you've been willing to sow in tears. Friends, this is our life. We sow in tears, but as you sow in tears, that's when harvest comes. And the question really is for us, do you believe in the harvest? It will require sowing with tears. It always has. If that happened for Jesus, it will happen for you and every other person who calls themselves a Christian until Jesus returns. But as we sow in tears, we sow in hope. That's what sowing is. That's what continuing to follow Christ in the midst of all these pressures is. It's, it's sowing in hope that, that the disasters, the calamities of our lives are not the end. They're just opportunities of growth, of resurrection. Because friends, as sure as Jesus has risen from the dead, your sowing in life is not in vain. Rest in this hope. The church and its mission, the Spirit's work in your life and in this church cannot fail because Christ is the conqueror of death and sin and has been sown and his seed has been sown into us. We cannot fail. We will have bad days. We will have dark nights. We will have hungry bellies. But friends, we sow and hope. Harvest will come. May we hope and wait and sow seeds until this harvest does come for us. Let's pray. Holy Father, we give you thanks for your word. Your word, which you promised, does not return void. I pray that you would work in our own hearts, that we would hope, 
that we would see your harvest spring forth and grow and produce fruit in our own hearts. Give us patience to wait, to see, to trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.